Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to a perfectly acceptable podcast, episode 278. It's a fun time from three buddies who love to live in the sunshine. If that sounds weird, it's because we just did this intro and got about three minutes into this podcast and did not realize it wasn't recording. Did Django's phone call get recorded? We don't know. Did Will's email get read? We don't know. All of this and more next time on Perfectly Civil Podcast episode 279. But no, you're here right now for the Comics Place Presents Perfectly Civil Podcast 278 Comic Podcast. Buddies who run a comic shop in Bellingham, Washington, who love to take in comics, read them, and spit out opinions and make love to each other audibly on the, the old podcast waves. I am always I'm Jeff. I'm, I'm Sean. <laughs> that it was way better the first time, but that wasn't so bad. We're about to engage in a variety of tangents, either related to or unrelated to the comic books we read this week, the comic shop that we run, or the comings and goings of our lives. Thank you ever so much and listen sean and roman you guys are both doing a really great job of just vibing with this rerun of the podcast oh yeah it's how like far in you're doing great. great you're doing I, great yeah this is awesome it's, it's recording it's, so you're doing great it's a cornucopia it's it's like a it's like a pinata podcast we talked to Andrew. There was a really wonderful intro. I think it's all been ruined. Andrew, I'm sorry if this didn't work. And a big shout out to all of our wonderful friends because Andrew Carlson is the best editor and we love him very much. So everyone owes a big debt of gratitude to Andrew Carlson. I don't remember what I said in this go through or the last go through, but we do have an email from one gorgeous sexual mountain I'd like to climb. William Elmer. Love you, Will. Hello and happy episode 278. As you are likely more than aware, San Diego Comic-Con last week was filled with tons of exciting announcements, particularly if you're still riding the MCU wave with Charlie Cox's Daredevil continuing his return, return and She-Hulk and then on to episode 18, an 18 episode run and Born Again. Namor and Ironheart debuting in Black Panther 2 was a big thing and two new Avengers movies, The Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars. I know you boys have busy schedules, but I'm curious to find out what news or announcements out of Comic-Con you are most excited for. Is there anything flying under the radar that most people should be hyped for? Or are you just hearing about all of this for the first time? Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Will. P.S. I went to Kelso and they were out of sandwiches. We're doing this for the second time. And you know what? It doesn't even feel that bad. You know why? Because there's a triangle of love being sent from us out into the universe. Gentle boy figures. You following Comic-Con? Did you see any of the trailers? Did you watch anything? You excited about anything? What, what What's getting you guys hort? Oh, man. There was a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of the MCU stuff is really cool. But actually, my favorite part of the con was uh, the Clerks 3 panel that finished out the show. Um I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. Dude has a huge heart and I love seeing him get to do this awesome thing. The story he tells about uh, watching the trailer for Guardians 3 and how it made him feel like a kid again. Guardians 3? Yeah. Was there a trailer for that? Uh, it hasn't been released. Oh, because you say yet. I haven't seen it. that. Yeah, they showed it at the con. But he was just, he told this wonderful story about watching that trailer and just like, everything else sort of falling away and like whoever he was sitting with in the room that he was watching it, like put their hand on his leg and it like brought him back to being a child and seeing 
uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with his dad in the theater and like his dad putting his hand on his leg and be like, this is amazing. Like, oh, it was a beautiful story. Um, but yeah, I think that was my uh, most excitement that I had for the con. Dude. Yeah, I love Kevin Smith. I I don't know what I love more about Kevin Smith, his ability to tell stories or the movies that he makes. It's probably all the same thing, but his spoken word stuff is some of my favorite stuff in the entire world anymore. Um, I have not watched that yet. I did watch the Clerks 3 trailer and I do not know if other people are excited about it, but I am because Jay and Silent Bob reboot boot was awesome. Yeah. And this looks very much to be in that same vein. Yeah. Um, God. Yeah. And they, they made the wise decision to let him close out Comic-Con because they know the man can't stick to a, a time yeah. frame here. You let him go as half, long as he but wants. if he goes seven hours, that's okay. Yeah. And you know, he wants to, he, I, I'm pretty sure he recorded uh Hollywood Babylon immediately after doing like a two hour panel to end <laughs> Comic-Con. It's like the dude just does not stop. He loves talking about nerdy stuff. My favorite thing was the Black Panther trailer. I don't know if that's old hat or cliche, but the trailer was amazing. Uh, Made me tear up a little bit. And there's this incredible, incredible cover of No Woman, No Cry that happens and then transitions into Kendrick Lamar's All Right. And Kendrick did the whole soundtrack for the first movie. And it's uh, the trailer is amazing from like a soundtrack perspective and a mixing perspective. And then also it just made me really excited for that movie. Yeah, I got some serious emotions watching that trailer. Roman, did you keep up with anything? Um, <clears throat> not really. Uh, but I saw our 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 friend, our friend and buddy James Burke posted on the Facebook comics group page for Bellingham. He posted some maybe all trailers from the first day or something so i saw the she hulk and didn't see clerks three but i saw the she hulk and a bunch of them and i think i don't remember what they all were black panther definitely that was the one i was most excited for so i'm really excited for she hulk too that looks like a lot of fun and i'm really hoping i mean i yeah it's probably daredevil that's who they say it is but i'm really hoping that they're fucking with us and it's actually night thrasher because that would just crack me up so much because it looks like night thrasher's armor and they don't show his face and it's like and he uses two two clubs like nightwing so it's 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 cpap everyone knows um it's papcast we say deep cuts like that roman but that's not why we're here what we're here to do is talk about comics no i mean yeah we are i'm gonna leave so yeah oh sorry this is just the cpap (laughs) machine over here um we're gonna talk about a number of comics this week uh, a variety of which will include but are not limited to What's on that envelope? A piece of paper that has oh, a list winning of winning lottery books. numbers. Winning Woo! lottery. 22, 72, 39. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. Uh, we're going to talk about Bingo! Superman <laughs> Space Age. Number one, Detective Comics 1062, Amazing Spider-Man 900. We're going to talk about Robin 16, uh, Deadly Class 54, Ant-Man number one, Harley Quinn number 17. You know, a bunch of things. So if you haven't read your books yet, pause we'll be here you can listen to this anytime uh read them come back if you're not worried about spoilers worse or not uh hang out with us for a little while boys let's give a love round of applause for Django for just three seconds one two three i'm not sure age wrong um yeah but i don't know if anything was recorded about your incorrect age oh that's true never mind um so roman's 36 and we love it okay superman space age number one written by mark russell art by mark (laughs) or sorry 
<laughs> Mike Allred, art or colors by Laura Allred and letters by Dave Sharp. You guys, this was an 80 page giant that didn't use the words 80 page giant to self-describe itself from DC Comics this week. Holy shit. What was this comic? It was a big one. There was a couple of big books that took up a lot of my time this week. Dude, you're not kidding. This was 80 <laughs> pages. Detective Comics was over 30. And then Spider-Man 900 was probably 900 pages. At least. Yeah. Like, uh, really yeah, surprising wish- on DC's part, not putting 80 page giant all over the front of that. Thing. Yeah, I wish they had done that. It would have totally fit. I think to get really to the heart of the issue here, Sean, what did it feel like needing to read Marlon Brando this often in a comic book? <laughs> because Mike Allred decided to make Jorel Mike Allred, or sorry, Marlon Brando, Brando yeah. <laughs> who I think played him in the movies, right? The yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Um, were you were you distraught having to read that much Marlon Brando? <laughs> no, I, I didn't even really think about it being Marlon Brando. And honestly, I'm so used to Superman being drawn as Christopher Reeve that like he looks so much different in this that I didn't really make the connection of the Marlon Brando appearance in there. So yeah, this book, I, sorry, Roman, please. And, and I realized in this reading those fortress scenes, I was like, yeah, but uh, uh, Alred kind of makes all ma- male characters look kind of like Marlon Brando. Yeah, he does. He's a big fan Cal of classical. Like, yeah, Cal Out looks like him too. Even in some scenes where like Lex Luthor is talking to like Hal Jordan, like Bruce Wayne looks a little bit like Marlon Brando. <laughs> like, <it's crazy. laughs> so he's got a favorite male. Um, this book starts in the 80s and then shit is going wrong and then it jumps back to the 60s. No, the 40s first, right? Oh, the 40s. And then, yeah, yeah. And then through the 60s just kind of tells this story of the kind of the Justice League forming around an alien invasion. Lex Luthor is there. He incorporates an alternate origin for Batman. He incorporates an alternate origin for Hal Jordan, an alternate origin for Flash coming down the line, um, alternate Bruce Wayne. I had no idea what this book was trying to do going in. I did not realize what this book was, I suppose, while I was going into it. Uh, it's way more ambitious than I thought it was. Roman, as a classical Silver Age fan, what did you think of this? Oh, I loved it. It was, um, I, w- <clears throat> I didn't know going in either quite what it was. And I didn't realize it was going to be kind of set during Crisis on Infinite Earths, but not really. And going back to, you know, Silver Age Superman. So he's becoming Superman during the 60s. And I didn't expect all the um, really good commentary on on the civil rights crisis, which is still a crisis now and it was also relevant to nowadays and they got in it and the pivotal moment in it is kennedy's assassination but it also gets into um i like the scene where where this is it clark where no no where lois ends up interviewing the freedom writers in yeah. jail and and john lewis is the guy she interviews and i was like oh crap i didn't expect any of this it was just it was just very smart and gets into kind of the heart of heroism which i'm i'm maybe that's the point of this three issue series if so, yeah. that'd be, that's awesome. It's the kind of thing we we need to read about. It's interesting because it really is like the introduction of this idea of like the Russell verse. Because like Batman yeah. becomes Batman, but he's not intentionally Batman. It's like an armory thing he's trying to have bought by the government to be like, you know, like it's because the ears. Yeah, armored figures to fight bad guys with the ears. Um it's it's an origin that doesn't fit anywhere in modern continuity. But like, just like Roman said, it gets to the heart of heroism in a really wonderful way. It kind of reminded me of Superman Smashes the Clan by Gene mm-hmm. Luen Yang and Guri Hero, Hero, which is just this like amazing story. But it's kind of this like, yeah, continuity doesn't necessarily matter. The point is the story we're trying to tell. And that's kind of what this one is to me. But then you get Mike Allred doing the art who doesn't do much art. Uh, Sean, what did you think of this thing? Oh, I absolutely loved it. Did either of you get 
uh, New Frontier vibes reading this? Yeah, I yeah. I okay. did. Yeah, it, it, you know, because it's Justice League in that time period. Um, yeah. New Frontier stands alone in a tier of like 10.0 things to me. Yeah. But yeah. the way that this is constructed, it puts it in that tier. I can't you know say that for sure right now because we only have one of three. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was going to be like a retro Superman space story. And instead, it is the most direct comparison I can draw to it is New Frontier, which is, yeah, you're totally right. That's absolutely the most direct comparison I can draw right now is that yeah. so far it feels like a all red and Russell New Frontier version, which is amazing. Yeah, I love Mark Russell's writing. And uh, I I wasn't sure going into this which Mark Russell we were getting. If it was going to be the more satirical, funny Mark Russell. Um, and there's some of that in there, but it is way more serious and it is kind of slowly paced, but like it never bothered me at any point because everything was so interesting that was happening. So then, uh, so I think that's a really interesting distinction, like the different Mark Russells. So then what Mark Russell is this? Because there's the question. satirical one, right? And mm-hmm. then there's this other thing. And I think this is maybe the strongest example of what that other thing is. Like Wonder Twins feels like a precursor to this because it did the humorous stuff, but it was also pretty serious. And Something, also, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like what yeah. I think we're on the dawn of like Mark Russell kind of redefining what his career is, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say this is a social commentary, Russell, but without any humor. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Is, isn't to say it's depressing or anything. It's great, but. And I was, and let me correct myself earlier. I said it was started out around Crisis of Infinite Earths, but I just looked back and when Clark Kent meets uh, Pariah, who in the comics we didn't meet until Crisis of Infinite Earths, it's in 1964. Right. Or, or 63, because there's the announcement about the Beatles. Right. On, yeah. on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so and that was 64. So I loved the Pariah scene. Like I, I yeah. thought, you know, yeah, it was a great way of grounding it in a time, grounding it in the, continuity of dc but also not you know kind of like what the new 52 did well it was like okay here's an anchoring point but also be flexible with the characters around it um yeah i think i think it's the best thing for me that mark russell has done since wonder twins and you know it yeah i i it's a it's a i liked it a lot gentlemen me too yeah i'm Um, excited i'm excited for the next two issues of this to see where it's gonna go yeah because throughout reading the whole thing i was like oh i did not know what this direction was gonna be so now yeah i really you know at the end of this issue spoilers we kind of get batman superman green lantern and wonder woman creating the justice league and then the next preview cover has those four and the flash on it like what is this series uh jeff what did you think of the pa kent war stuff early in the book that's a great question um i can we toss that to roman i think that's a better yeah yeah i was gonna ask what did you think about that because that is i'm curious what we all thought about that but yeah i i I really like that i realized reading this i was like you know i know it doesn't fit with the modern timeline or whatever timeline we're in now but um i really kind of like pa kent having been a world war ii veteran um and lois's dad too i was i guess also mm-hmm. um as kind of i just kind of dig that because the moments like that way you could tell clark a story like the story he tells him in this that's that's so affecting yeah it's heartbreaking it's, yeah it's interesting just to like do that to paul kent's character because if you remove the reader's ability to kind of like empathize with the situation and look at what happened and you're like whoa paul kent's supposed to be perfect He's supposed to be like an angel that teaches Clark to be good along with, you know, Ma Kent. But there's a real fallibility introduced to the character with this retcon. 
And I think it totally works, but it, it did make me, I, I, I could feel myself not disagreeing with the people who were like, no, 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 no. He's supposed to be unblemished. And this puts a blemish on his character. It, so to speak, not, he's not a bad character at all. Yeah. But like, yeah it, so to speak. And in the situation, I mean, not condoning it or whatever, but it's not, it's the kind of situation in war that could happen to any of us that was in a war in that situation. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it paints him as a bad person at all. Like, right. It's a, you know, it's a very uh, tricky situation that they're in. Like, yeah, where, I mean, they really, they really don't know what they're walking into. So yeah, the story that somebody tells later, maybe it's Pa again, um, about the, the, the bridge in Germany and the Americans oh, yeah. and the Germans. And, and later on the guy finding, Oh, was Sam, was it Pa or was it Sam Lane? Lois's dad. How I can't, remember, I can't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. How he, how he found out he talked to one of the German prisoners was and mentions how, you know, we were, we were here to stop the German, the German aggression or whatever. And the German soldiers like, well, we were here to stop the American. And he realized, oh crap, we're just being, we were used, both lied being used, to. Yeah. By yeah. the top brass. It did feel like the issue was kind of divided into thirds almost where there was kind of a story, like a theme or a moral that was being trying to express in the thirds. I forget what the one in the first one was, but in that second one, it did feel like that was the moral of this idea of like trying to do the right thing, but then failing like, um, yeah, I don't know. I almost wonder if this was like maybe going to be a nine issue series because I did have the feeling reading this that could have was it divided into chapters? We read some big comics this week. So I'm yeah, I don't curious. remember if it was actually um, divided in chapters. I don't remember seeing chapters. No, it, this one doesn't look to have been. There was another big issue that we read that had chapters, but it, yeah. it almost felt like it was divided into time frames and themes that went on, like kind of a repeating morals or something. But um, yeah, Roman. Yeah. Oh, just the, yeah. Well, I mean, it was definitely a timeline going through the years here with interspersed with flashbacks but but yeah it wasn't really chapters but yeah there was kind of a three major themes guys can i can i say something that i don't want to surprise you guys with but this book was a perfect 10 for me this week oh i'm (laughs) debating that score in my head right now because i I wrote down a nine i started this in the evening and it just kind of without really thinking about how long it was and it pulled me through the entire time at one point i was like two thirds through and i was like do i stop i was like no like the art the art somehow was secondary and i think that that almost never happens when mike allred is the artist he's in many books and it is seldom that the writing is better or as good as the art it's he's usually in books that are kind of wacky or crazy um i am like silver surfer i think is the like maybe my third or fourth favorite book he's been a part of but i think it's the best example of him being tied to a really cohesive writing partner and this one you know, it, it's so easy to follow. It's beautiful to look at. It's going to make an incredible hardcover that I'm going to own. Um, I got to I got to give it a 10. I, I am impressed by it by on every front. And it's crazy that I'm not just talking about the art because it's all red. Roman, what'd you give it? I also gave it a 10. And yeah, I, I completely agree with everything Jeff just said. Uh, and even on the geez, the second the third page i mean i was already thrilled to be reading this on the third page on the second panel there's the it shows one of my favorite parts of superman lore just because it's like i think the first story the dinosaur thing yeah yeah it's i forget what it's it's full name but it's a yeah someplace like kandorian thought beast or something (laughs) which which is a beast that it it's weird screen between its horns it shows you the thoughts of yourself or anybody who's who's near it and 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 there was a the, like the first 
story I remember ever reading <laughs> that had like Krypton lore in it was it had this creature in it. It was an integral to the plot. It was a Silver Age reprint story. And so I've always loved that that creature just mm. because it was it was the first Krypton thing I knew about other than the fact Krypton exploded. So then, Sean, uh, where, where are you going to go with your score after you're hanging out with two boys that dropped a gooby duck on it? Listen, you guys both dropped a 10 on me. I had written down a nine for my score. But as That's we were okay. talking, as we were talking about it, though, it kept creeping up. But you know me. I don't do decimals. Yeah, so no, I think no I got to bump it up to a 10. Woo. You dog. I got to do it. A, a three. This is a, a three man, 30 point score. So if you're hearing that and you did not pick up Superman Space Age, you you have to. It's enormous. It is $9.99, but it's 80 pages. That is it's almost so worth four it. issues. That is almost yeah. four 22-page comics. Um, yes. So it is worth it. And it's some it's some of the best comic booking I've read in so long. And yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're going to buy one big boy comic this week, make it that one. Yeah. There's another one that's the yeah. same price point that is not worth it. Yeah. We'll can, I, it. can I add this even? Yeah. It's just cute how it's not important to the story, but. Russell or maybe Alred throw in a lot of nods to like the Superman movies, like Luther's got Otis and Miss Teskmacher in there. Mm -hmm. Why the hell Luther would keep Otis around? I have no idea. (laughs) But but even the little things, there's Bibbo's in it, who wasn't introduced until the 90s comics. And we had a Bibbo backup story recently. I forget what it was in, but maybe it was in like, yeah, I can't forget. But yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Maybe it was the Jimmy Olsen comic. I forget. Yeah, maybe it was an action. I didn't read that one. But yeah. (laughs) I think it's so interesting how even when you get a fresh take like that, those Christopher Reeve Superman movies are so consistently leaned on as un unadulterated, unapproachable fact in the Superman lore. <laughs> I I really like the even just like the crystalline, you know, I, I would love yeah. to talk to Mark Russell about just like, is that all, you know, like Christopher Reeves or like, where does that come from? The crystalline nature of the Fortress of Solitude or the way the information is transported through Krypton? Yeah. Like, that, that came that came from the Superman, the Richard Donner Superman movies. See, yeah. And I keep saying Christopher Reeves, but I shouldn't say Richard Donner, but they're... Anyway. They're, I mean, Christopher Reeve is Superman, so... Yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. So <laughs> it, it's amazing. Everyone should go out and buy that book. I think we have some copies left. At, le- at the very least, uh, some of us will be bringing our copies back that we read. So that was amazing. Another big boy book that we read this week, but not the other biggest boy book that we read this week, is Batman Detective Comics number 1062 this is written by rom v with art by uh rafael albuquerque and there's a backup story in here by simon spurrier with art by danny who is an artist that we've been talking about on this podcast for a while now um this is a brand new creative team taking over detective comics i've been incredibly excited about this jumping on point it's batman in a world where our batman comics and our main batman comics batman and detective have been for lack of a better term wanting in my mind and now we've got, you know, Chip Zdarsky's one issue into his Batman run. And we've got Rom B as one run issue into his Detective Comics run. I'm curious in the, in the realm of big boy comic books that came out this week. And when we just compared one to a 10, uh, what, what did you guys think of Detective Comics? Roman? Oh, <laughs> I was going to let you go. Um, I liked it. I liked it. I, I was I was wondering, is this kind of a, a spiritual sequel? To, didn't Grant Morrison do a an issue of Batman or Legends of Dark Knight called Opera. Oh, well, he did Gothic. Yeah, yeah he did dude. Gothic. And yeah, and, this, yeah, that was like the first arc of Legends uh, of Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or, and, and the, was there one called Shaman as well, or was that? that I don't know that, if that was Morrison, but there was Shaman, yeah. Yeah, there was Shaman. And I think okay. there was a, maybe it was just a one issue that wasn't that successful that Morrison did called, I could have sworn called Opera. Okay, that, that I'll people, look for it. That people kind of like poo-poo a little bit because it wasn't a 
popular or significant Morrison Batman issue, which it seems like they all are, except for like that one. <laughs> but anyway, I, I like this a lot. It was uh, the art was good. The story was good. I was I was actually I don't know why I was kind of surprised how gothic it was. And in a way, how um, because, uh, well, spoilers, because, you know, Talia shows up to give him a message. And I was like, oh, I didn't expect this to kind of launch into like old characters like her and just bringing them in. I mean, it was just great. It had some great Dick Grayson, Bruce Wayne banter that I really liked. I loved their Dick poking fun at him for being old. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was cute. great. <laughs> it, it introduces a some kind of secret society and a weird mystery. And that's always cool. Roman, I'm not seeing you... a, a Batman opera arc um, by Morrison oh. or even one written. Um, but also it could be. Could, I think I it could be. I just was a very cursory Google. So. Yeah. And I think it was just one issue. Maybe it wasn't called opera, but it was. I remember it had like an operatic character as kind of the villain, but hmm. yeah, it was very theatrical. Hmm. Uh, Roman, what did you think of the little puzzle <clears throat> box thing that Batman has in it? Did you get any Hellraiser vibes from that? It ends oh, up being yeah. a music box, but right. I first, yeah. when they first introduced it, I was like, oh my God, like, are we going to get really dark with this? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I still, About yeah. Some of the Cenobites. <laughs> yeah. And even though it does pop up as a music box, I was, I was, especially because the end, I was like, oh, crap speaking of morrison um <laughs> with that ending that's like oh yeah this is gonna well we see barbados in this you know yeah. which mm. is you know i don't know the, the we'd have to ask chris murphy our wonderful friend from batman and quarantine what the real heart of barbados historically is um but it's certainly a, a, a gothic beast that occurs in morrison's run and is kind of the bat entity that historically is tied to batman you know, in his time traveling journeys as Morrison introduced to us. So there's there's a strong Morrison tie to this. I love Rom V. He did The Savage Shores. He There's a real kind of classicalism that he brings to his writing, you know, like operatic. Uh, this is kind of, this is called Batman Nocturne. But I think classicalism is almost like there's a real refined nature to the stories that he tells. There's a dignity to them. And I think he brought that to this Batman story in the way that he brings things to many of his runs. Uh, I think he's really a preeminent writer in comics right now. And he's only on the cusp of his breakout. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. everyone should go and read The Many Deaths of Layla Starr if they haven't already. Oh, that yeah. is an easy 10 out of 10 from me. And that is the first thing I read from Rom V that instantly made me a fan. Yeah, he's got a lot of great work. He's currently writing uh, the Swamp Thing for DC, yep. which is just about to end, <clears throat> mm -hmm. which isn't, I don't think is quite as good as some of his other stuff, but it's it does have that very classical feel and kind of Alan Moore Swamp Thing feel, though, though definitely not as good as that. I'm always interested in the distinction that exists between the main Batman title and the Detective Comics title, because those two are the longest running Batman titles that exist, and they generally in, exist in tandem. And you know, what editorial perceives as the voice that should exist in the Batman title and then the Detective Comics title. It can never be the same, but it's also got to be pretty similar. And I think that this book does a really good job. Um, when the the Pattinson Batman movie came out, there was a lot of praise for just like, it felt like Batman as a detective, you know? And I think that Detective Comics at its best does that same thing. And I think that this, without being overly heavy handed, did that same thing. Like it, it talked about the way, you know, he jumps into that base to invade it and he jumps through the, the lasers and he knows he jumps through the lasers that are going to warn people, but he's aware that him being, a you know, them being aware that he's there is going to cause fear and then cause them to mess up. Like there's a lot of um, his deduction that goes into this and him being a wonderful detective and crime solver. And I think that when you can do that in detective comics, but also still feel like a Batman comic, that's when you're really, really succeeding. 
And I think that the combination of Raphael Albuquerque, who did American Vampire, who is very good at kind of gothic horror, combined with that kind of gothic dignity of Rom V is a really, really good pairing. I love this comic. I think that the backup, I totally agree. We probably didn't get Django's recording in here because I bungled up the recording. If you (laughs) are listening, you know. Um, but there's a backup by Simon Spurrier with art by Danny. And it's like a, it's almost like a direct continuation of Jimmy TIV's Joker run. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, I only read the final issue of that and the first half of it. I don't know if you guys were reading that, but what did you guys think of the backup? I loved the backup. Um, I don't know if I liked it more than the main story, but I, I loved it a lot. And it de- it definitely does feel like a continuation of Joker, because which was very much a James Gordon book, as much as it was a Joker book, if not more. Um, but yeah, this is like a, a good, hard-boiled James Gordon story in the backup. And Danny's art is outstanding. Danny's art is amazing. They're it's so good. They're, they're going to blow up. They're going to blow yeah. up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that too. And yeah, it was a great continuation. Um, It's really intriguing that, they're keeping Jim Gordon active in the bat universe, even though he's no longer commissioner. I love and, it. It's like and, a fresh reinvention of the character, which was de- yeah. desperately needed. Yeah. This is a great story. He does a lot of the, not quite, you know, nine panel pages, but there it's like six panels and then some really, and there's interspersed with some, like a panel that's just text, but it's and all it, based around the nine panel grid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really, which works. I think is impressive. Like they, when they combine the panels, like Roman is saying, it's still all is using the framework of the nine panel grid, which maybe sounds boring, but is incredible when people use it well like this. Yeah. It really works well. And it's Simon Spurrier, which, you know, I've, I've really liked a lot of his, he's a good writer. Like especially recently he did that Hellblazer story. That was amazing. And yeah. did that step by bloody step, which is a dialogue yeah. book, but it's fucking oh. beautiful. Yeah. I just yeah. want to shout out page two and the top third of in the backup and the top third of that, just the woman that is the foreground of that third of the panel. Um, the way that her dress exists in that panel, I think is absolutely incredible. Um, I, she's, I gotta in look. The, she's in the foreground and there's not really a definitive line that outlines her comparatively to the background, but it's, it reminds me very much of V and shameless while she's working at the bar. I, it's just uh, and I think what? it's really great that they made Gordon's so fallible in this. He's an alcoholic, right? He's like not knowing how to fill his time. I think adding an amount of damage to Gordon again is really good and not making it about him being a bad family man, but making it about him not knowing how to fill his time about his career is is awesome. I, I just, he, he just wants to help people. He just wants to help. Just like that man. <laughs> mm-hmm. But less scary. Yeah. So then yeah, yeah, him, sorry, trying Roman, to, yeah. him trying to figure out his purpose now. I don't think I don't I didn't get the impression he's actually an alcoholic, though. It, yeah, just yeah, in, he, in part of his yeah. depression. I mean, he doesn't say he's depressed, but he's obviously depressed. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I did like that one panel where he's actually stumbling around drunk and <laughs> Batman's like passing by or something. And she's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, you're right. His pat, his fucking cape is in the background. I didn't realize yep. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And the art, again, is absolutely incredible. I, I think in terms of a, a, you know, a front and back comic, one that's got uh a front story and then a backup. This is absolutely incredible. My score is a 9.5. It's again, I, I, there is so many bad, sorry, so many, so many good Batman comics coming out right now. Batman, the night, this Batman story, an endless number of other ones. Uh, we're getting mini series like the Tom King stuff. We're spoiled. And yet this stands, this, this just makes me feel like, Oh my God, we're getting Chip Zdarsky and this detective run right now. Like we are, a, we're in a, just a, spoiled riches right now what what is that term roman 
um maybe that's it i, I can't yeah, I, don't remember, like that. I don't remember like, yeah, uh, something like that yeah something riches okay anyway what were your guys scores uh i gave it i also gave it a, a 9.5 and i hope that i've liked it best in the past when they've had bat the the main Batman title be kind of slightly more superhero-y DC universe Batman and keep detective as more the dark detective gothic whatever I totally agree universe of its own type of thing yeah I I, I hope this direction continues for both books Sean where are you at um I gave it an eight nice but after reading the backup story I bumped it up to a nine nice no decis for you fuck those things. i don't fuck with those decimals man <laughs> yeah, no one should i admire that yeah <laughs> i admire it too uh, all right well before we take a pee break let's talk about uh spider-man 900 but the folks have heard uh roman and i talk about this series i've kind of talked about most of the issues this is technically issue six in this zeb wells john Romita jr run except for there's no John Romita Jr. in this at all. This is Ed McGinnis on the fill-in art for a very large issue that I returned to the store because we ran out of them. Sean, what are your thoughts on this current Spider-Man run and what do you think of this issue in specific? Uh, I have been very starved for a good Spider-Man book. We all have. And Amazing Spider-Man has not been doing it for me. This this modern run right now? Yeah, this current run. The, the previous run was also not doing it for me. The Beyond stuff I was not liking. Um, however, this issue does have this very nice Peach Momoko cover. Oh, you like Peach Momoko? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys know this about me. Well, why don't you tell Peach Momoko, who is definitely listening right now, how you feel about her art? Um, you get seven seconds. One. Perfection. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that, four, that's, that's it. Five, I don't need perfection. seven seconds. It's perfection. Peachfection. Okay. Peachfection. Um, Roman, what did you think of this issue specifically? Well... There is a, the A cover is a J.R. Jr. That's the only art we get of his yeah, on this. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was trepidatious going in because, yeah, I've been reading this run and haven't been thrilled with it. Those have been some really good issues. Um, you know, one funny thing in the beginning of the series, we're in this uh, uh, construction site or whatever, excavation site. And there's these guys running around, the, the work crew are running around with these... Uh, the yellow safety helmets and it has ICM on it. I don't know what that stands for. Ice cream man. Every time be. I saw it. Yeah. I was like, this is an issue to ice cream man. The yeah. Spider-Man. Oh boy. Oh, that's not what it is. I could get um, behind that. Yeah. 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 Actually, I was thrilled when the first full page spread where they they're lifting the item out of the whole, out of the excavation. And it's uh, the living brain. Cause that was a robot that was in like, you know, the first, eight or I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. The first 10 issues of Spider-Man, this, things showed up so i was excited by that but overall the issue i was like i don't know it was it was kind of a letdown for being the issue 900 for me i mean had the, and i was in the sinister six is one of my favorite spider-man groups probably the first there was a treasury edition in the 70s i read that reprinted that entire annual introducing the set the sinister mm-hmm. six so i was thrilled for that i've loved them ever since then and and you know the cover's great it's got the class it's like the amazing spider-man the sinister seven <laughs> question Ooh. mark exclamation mark <laughs> Yeah, join. I don't know. It was goofy. The spider cast was all there, and uh, Doctor Octopus's arms do a lot of cute stuff, and they operate they independently. And at one point, I mean, it was funny. They somehow form a heart because they like Spider Man like a, a sweet little puppy. Oh. But I was like, well, that's cute and all, but that's not how his arms. They can't like form a heart. They're not. Uh. <laughs> it was just a weird issue. It was a weird issue. Uh, it didn't I didn't feel like it needed to be a huge issue. Yeah, no. yeah. Like, 
I appreciate that they tried to like tie it into the history of Spider-Man by making it the living brain and doing editorial notes of like back in this way or like web heads back in this one, you know, like shouting back really old issues. Um, I don't think it detracted from the main Spider-Man story we've been getting, but I do not think the Ed McGinnis art, I thought it was not good Ed McGinnis art. And I thought it was a real departure from the tone that we've been getting. I love the moment that Spider-Man has with Black Cat during it. Um, There's a great bit there. And they do make sure that this feels like Spider-Man's birthday. But yeah, I got it. This was easily the most disappointing issue of this current run for me, which I've actually really enjoyed a lot up to this point, the first five issues. But yeah, this was, um, I don't think, worth the buck, uh, especially after we talked about the last two big boy issues that we read. Um, It was, the art was bleh. And the story was only fine and didn't really seem to move anything ahead. Uh, I think I, I thought it was a huge step backwards for the characterization of Flash Thompson. Yeah. Roman, I love that you pointed out that a lot of the dialogue the Sinister Six characters are using in those first panels or probably most of their dialogue is lifted directly from their original writing. Yeah, which well, is, it's the yeah. um, a super adaptoid shows up and which is another cool Silver Age thing I love from Marvel because the Adaptoids could uh, mimic the, it was their version of Amazo. They could mimic the powers, whoever they were programmed with. So usually the Adaptoid had all the powers of the Avengers at the time. This one has all the powers of the Sinister Six. And that's the one that the Adaptoid is using um, dialogue from that actual Spider-Man annual where the Sinister Six first appeared, which that's cool. Yeah, it, it's cool historically, but in terms of an issue that you would spend 10 bucks to read, um, I think it it fell short pretty, pretty hard. I actually gave it a 7.0, which is probably my lowest rating for this run so far. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Flash Thompson, I was, I was I, with his dialogue. I was like, is this Flash? Because Flash has matured since then. I, I had to eight... flip back for like, is this a jump back in time? Yeah. Like, was, was he dead? He came back, but okay. yeah, he he's grown back. a lot. But yeah, he was Agent Venom and everything. And there was some dumb little things like him and Felicia Hardy both like exclaim about their powers and stuff right in front of Aunt May and everybody. So it's like, wait, so does everybody know that Flash and Felicia are also superheroes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, introduce more questions than unanswered. Um, So what were your boys' scores? Um, I'm looking at my list. I'm looking at, oh, I gave it a seven. Yeah, it's great. Double sevens. Sean, what'd you give it? I gave it a six. Nice. That's, that's with a Peach Momoko cover. So Ooh, it was probably like a, like a, like a four. Three. Yeah, yeah three, three or a four that I bumped up because of the Peach Momoko. Well, all right. I got to go pee. Nice. That's your cue, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Well, what did you guys think of the uh, the final backup story with um, who the hell is it? Was that uh, the one in like the library? No, the one after that with Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did not like that at all. I did like the one right before that, though. That one was kind yeah, of funny. Yeah, the library one was cute. And the one after that, the Jimmy Kimmel was all right. But yeah, mm-hmm. Jimmy Kimmel, and I was like, I don't know how that's you feel. what the kids want is fucking yeah, Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, I don't know how you guys what? feel about Jimmy Kimmel. But yeah, he was like my least favorite late night host. Of- yeah, easily. I did like the text page in the back that has where they're just asking the different creators for this issue, artists and everybody, you know, oh, what are we, some of your favorite Spider-Man moments oh. through the history of Spider-Man? That was fun. I didn't even actually read that part. I'll, I'll look at that tonight. Uh, and of course, a I, lot of it's the, you know, Spider-Man being trapped underneath the, the debris classic, and yeah, with the water yeah. dripping down his face. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty iconic scene. Um, yeah, this one took me three days to get through. Three sittings to get through <laughs> this book. Uh, yeah. Space Age, which might be bigger. I don't know. I, I read in one sitting because I was so yeah. into what was going on. So this was definitely a letdown. 
I, I did. I think I was complaining over the the text chat. She's like, "Why the <laughs> fuck is this so oh. big? Number yeah. six, number nine hundred. Like, who cares? Just do a normal issue once a month, please." Yeah, yeah. Well, Superman, it did take me. It took me two sittings, but only because I started it late at night, and I was. It was like one a.m., almost two a.m., and I was. I was like, "Why am I starting this now?" Yeah. <laughs> and I only got like six pages in. And say, so, yeah, that's the recipe for me to completely forget a book is if I yeah. read it that late. Yeah, and amazing Which, did take like two days for me to get through it all. Yeah, it was chonky. Doc Doc Ock is kind of he's got some dialogue that's kind of out of character too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There was some weird stuff in there. I do like the ultra living brain. That was cool. Yeah, I thought you would like that. <laughs> um, it's funny. One of the things they asked the creators is, "Web armpits or clean shaven?" <laughs> <laughs> I got. I got to say, I got to go for the. The webbing in the armpits. That's oh, Steve, I love Steve Ditko's the designs. Armpits. Yep, I'm a big yeah. fan of that. Yeah, it's still amazing how Spider-Man's costume, his original costume, is such a. It's still such a unique design. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, and it's always the one I think of when I think of Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Despite him having many different costumes over the years, that's the one I always think of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be Ditko's greatest visual creation ever. Who's so. that? Spider-Man's original mm-hmm. costume mm-hmm. with the webbing in the armpits. It is so fucking hot, dude. It's I'm dying in here right I'm now. I'm dying too. Or right, can I run and grab water real quick? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. Oh yeah, I'm gonna actually run and grab a glass of water myself. I'm gonna drink my water. <clears throat> I can never remember, Sean. So that room you're in is that so that's your room in the house, but then you also have your outside. This- this is not my room. This is oh. Grant's room. This oh, was right. my room at one point if, okay. when it was initially because this used to be a crawl space. Yeah. That Brant dug out and made into another room in the house. Okay. Now, uh, I rem- yeah, I remember you said that last time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I moved in originally after he had uh, dug it out and made it into a room. And then eventually um, I had moved out once he did the shed thing. I moved out there and yeah. he moved in here. Cool. Cool. Just I saw your backpack in the background there, and it's like, oh, is oh. That John's backpack next to it, next to a bed. You can tell it's not my room because there's not a million DVDs covering the walls. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for usually a sec- good indicator for my room. Yeah. is just DVDs everywhere, stacks well, for, on the floor, all of the shelves. <laughs> for a second, I thought, does Sean have? Does he use that room to sleep in? And the 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 shed is just the DVD shed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do I do sleep out there too. <laughs> not that thing's about to take over. Mmm, I feel crackers. What do you got? Mm, some like Hagen crackers. I don't know. Oh, Hagen crackers. <laughs> it's all sheep tummy for me. Mm, mm. Baby. Mm. I'm glad we're not doing buckshot because there's just too small of a week. I don't. I, don't I know. know. I know. Beyond what we're talking about, I didn't yeah. really read very much, and even some of the stuff we're talking about, I sort of skimmed more than I read. Although Sean's about to do a mini shot, I did a bunch of other little readings, but none of it was good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, not all read. So, Sean, you read a couple books this week that I know you had mentioned to talk about a couple things last week on your inaugural appearance on the podcast, and we brought you back. Um, do you want to tell us a little about Robin 16 and Harley Quinn 17, two books that you read this week that came out? Yeah. Um, I really wanted to talk about them just because I feel like not enough people are reading these series. Um, and normally I'm not a huge Williamson fan, but for whatever reason, I feel like he gets Robin right. Um but yeah, uh, really, I'd rather talk about Stephanie Phillips' Harley Quinn, which is about to wrap up this big arc here. And it's the last issue that Riley Rossmo is doing the art on, who I'm a very big fan of. Um, but this entire run has been incredible and has sort of redefined the character uh, 
for all of, like the most positive things like um it's it's like a redemption story for harley um and it's written by stephanie phillips who is like the perfect pairing for her like she's smart and funny and everything she has a phd um she's queer like it's, it's just a great great uh pairing of creator and, and content um but i had sort of lost interest in harley for many many years like i love original harley like you know joker's we all did harley. yeah like, I love all that. But for a while there, she was not super interesting and sort of was going through this weird phase of being like sexy juggalo Harley, mm-hmm. which I was not super into. Um, but this dials all that way, way back and is more about Harley looking to to help people um, while also still being a badass with a baseball bat, you know, fighting crime and whatnot. Um, but like in this this run here, she started like a therapy group for other former henchmen of various villains, Joker being the most prominent of those. Um, she befriends this guy, Kevin, who was one of Joker's former henchmen who uh, survived the uh, what was it, Joker Day or whatever when yeah, he, he kills yeah. everyone at Arkham. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah, their, their connection um, between Harley and, and Kevin is kind of the the crux of the book and is it's just a really really beautiful relationship that they develop over all these issues and it sort of culminates in this great scene in this issue where um where like the the common trope of this scene would be that they have a misunderstanding which leads them bickering and whatnot whereas in this they have a misunderstanding and rather than that driving a wedge between them they sit down and they talk about it and they figure it out and they hug it out and it's beautiful like the last two issues have made me cry multiple times and it was a really, really nice send off for, for Riley who I'm going to miss sorely on this title. I'm not really sure who's taking over for the art after this. Um, how do you fill in Riley Rossmo's art? Like how do you, you either, right. It's, you either it's, ape it or you do an entirely different direction. I just don't even think anyone could ape it. It's so unique. I agree. Yeah. Um, he is going to be doing that Tim Drake book, which I'm very excited for. Oh, right, right, right. But I, I am really going to miss him on this book, but I mostly want to talk about because I want people to read this. Like we do not have enough people reading this book and it is so good. Yeah. Like, shout out any... Stephanie Phillips. That's like one of your two or three favorite writers right now. She's right? absolutely one of my favorites. And it's funny because last week I was so nervous about being on the show that I didn't talk about either of the two books that she did that I loved last week, um, which was Grimm <laughs> number three or yeah, number three. And uh, Silver Coin, number 12, was a great oh. issue, which I'm surprised we didn't talk about because we talked about it in the shop, Roman. Oh, that's oh, Yeah, that's true. We did. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't. Yeah, I don't know why we didn't. <laughs> as, as soon as we finished the podcast last week, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't talk about the two books I was most excited about. <laughs> so then what do you score these ones? Uh, I gave Harley Quinn 17 an easy 10 out of 10. Ooh. That really that really applies to the entire arc, though. Oh. Like. Um, the last two issues especially have been easy 10 out of 10s for me. Um, Robin Robin has been a lot of fun. It's introduced one of my favorite new characters, Flatline. And the next issue is the last, sadly. 17 will be the last of this Robin run, um, and it will be leading, I think, directly into this Batman versus Robin mini that's about to start. Um, but I gave that one probably an 8 out of 10. Um, I could use a little more Flatline in it, but it was pretty good. Is... is... <laughs> Uh, who's writing the Batman versus Robin mini? Is that Mark Wade? Oh, it's Wade. Oh, wow. It's it's coming out of Shadow War and World's Finest, which Mark Wade is writing World's Finest right now. Yeah. So that makes sense that he would be able to continue yeah. it in that. Um, um 
Well, I've got an email from the beautiful, wonderful, sweet Judd Morse, who's actually on the Aww. precipice of a large move, and we're going to miss you greatly, yeah, Judd. Um, but Judd's email says, hey, pals, do you guys have those personal favorite artists that you remember loving back in the day, but who seem to have dropped off the pl- face of the planet? I've been going through some of my old 90s era X books and came across some Adam Polina X-Force art. I love that guy's stuff as a kid. He always seemed to love to sneak in medieval style halos around characters' heads that I thought were just super badass. But when I started to think about it, I realized that I hadn't actually seen much comics-related work from him since X-Force. So I did some digging, and it looks like for the longest time, the only news about him was that he was apparently living in Bali and was making promoting bespoke beard combs. (laughs) <laughs> lately, he, lately, he's been making a bit of a comeback, working on Pirate Queen from uh, Bad Idea last year with Peter Milligan and possibly launching some NFT publishing thing called Icon, pronounced Icon. Uh, cool to see him out there, I guess. Are there any artist creators that you've loved that have disappeared from comics for a while, maybe due to a character or career change or strange satisfaction for male grooming kids? Judd, P.S., not comics related, but are your favorite? What are your favorite places to eat downtown? My favorite place to eat downtown is Pepper. No, sorry, Pepper Sisters is one, and then uh, Black Sheep is the other. Those are my two favorites, kind of Tex Mex style things. Solid. Um, um, Jeff, I just want to say something real quick before you answer the other part of the question. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that dude's comeback, but I think you meant comeback. Oh, <laughs> Sean, you're promoted. Welcome every week. We expect yes. you here, <laughs> especially with your new mic. <laughs> um, Roman, you're someone who's been reading comics their entire life. So I'm more interested in what you have to say about this than I do, which is I've caught up with a lot of runs. I actually can't think of anyone that I loved that has disappeared because so much of what I love is, is current. I guess Sergio Argones is somebody that like did Marvel and superhero origin stuff. I thought it was a great joke when I was a kid, but I don't see their art much anymore outside of Gru. Uh, Roman, you as a longtime comic art fan or writer fan, uh, what do you think? Also, Sean, for you as well, because you have you've been reading comics your entire life as well. Um, yeah, I was gonna think. I mean, other than the well, somebody disappeared because I was, you know, I was just looking up uh, Gene Day, who was an artist on Master of Kung Fu with Doug Mowich, kind of the the highlight of that series, and I had no idea. I just looked him up. The reason he disappeared, I had no idea. He died in 1982. That makes it hard to. So to wow, that's you... I had no idea that that's that's why I never saw him after <laughs> that series. God, he was only thirty one. Boy, Ouch. I, wow. I just, that just blows me away. Um, yeah, but yeah, Gene Day. There's other guys from the seventies. Rich Buckler, who I think I first saw on Astonishing Tales, drawn Deathlock. Um, I had a soft spot for Ron Friends, who did a lot of Marvel comics in the seventies and eighties, late seventies and through the eighties, and he's still around. I've saw some work of his recently on for some other. Silver Surfer publisher. or something? No, it was, was somebody... Ron Mars, maybe. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, not Ron Mars. He's a writer. Um, no, Ron Friends. Um, he doesn't do work for Marvel anymore, but I, I guess he's getting a little bit of work from uh, some independent publishers. Hmm. I always liked his version of the thing. Sean, any, anybody come into your mind? Uh, that's an easy one for me. Does anyone know what happened to Tony Moore? Oh, yeah. He just Original artist on Walking Dead. He uh, was my absolute oh. favorite for a while there and one of my yeah. favorite encounters at emerald city comic-con one of the he first probably years i just went. realized based on the money he makes off walking dead he never needs to work again for the rest of his life <laughs> probably probably um but he was so cool i went and uh you know i was a dumb poor teenager at that time 
And now you're just a fa- dumb adult poor person poor, working yeah, at a comic yeah. shop. We're yep, all yep. poor working at a comic <laughs> shop. <laughs> but no, it was awesome. I, I sought him out at Comic-Con. I really wanted him to sign something of mine. And I brought a little sketchbook with me because I wanted all my favorite artists to do a little sketch in them. Which at that time, it was really easy to get done. No one ever charged for little sketches like that. But I went over to his table. And at the time, I believe his wife was his manager. And she was around and I went over there and he signed my copy of Walking Dead Volume 1. And then I was like, hey, would you mind doing a quick little sketch in my book here? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. And I handed it to him and he looks over at his wife and she's just shaking her head. No, you're not doing it. And he goes, oh, uh, actually, sorry, I can't do it. And then she went to go do something a little ways away and he whispered to me. He goes, like, come back in 10 minutes. She'll be gone. (laughs) <laughs> so sure enough i came back a little bit later she was gone and he did the sketch for me oh so, yeah he'll, he'll always be one of my favorites but i have not seen anything from that guy in 10 years i'll have to settle for my robert kirkman zombie sketch um <laughs> thank you so much judd morris if you want to write us an email jeff at the comics place like we mentioned earlier roman oh, wait wait oh, wait, yeah. wait wait uh there was a second part of judd's question wasn't there? oh right there was uh, it was um, the, something the local local food i answered my my things yeah what was yours sean <laughs> mine is hagen chicken strips don't judge me <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome um i'll say uh uh, uh deanna's mm. okay Ant-Man number one from Marvel Comics, Al Ewing. Uh, this one came out this week, and we were happy to see that the art was done by Tom Riley, who I believe did the art in the Thing miniseries that came out recently. Ant-Man, um, this is a kind of big Marvel number one for a character that I don't really care anything about, but I did really like the art. Roman, what do you think of this? Oh, this was this was a blast. I, I didn't know anything about it because I try not to read any promo materials because I don't want any spoilers. Um, so I had no idea it was Al Ewing. And then when I saw his name on the cover, I was like, oh, okay, well, I've I got to read it no matter what. And it was a lot of fun. It's it's the art style. And most of the plot points are, it's an old fashioned, like Silver Age Marvel comic. And it's a miniseries, I think four issues. Each issue is going to focus on one of the different Ant-Men because there's been four Ant-Men, I think. Um, four issues yeah and th- and this issue was a blast it brought back a bunch of uh original ant-man hank pym villains that i'd never heard of because i never really read any reprints of ant-man uh, but they team up to take him out and it was very classic marvel just goofy pseudoscience action the wasp is in it because they were this is before they were married and they're, they're just dating and everything and little goofy touches like the submariner had um helped produce a movie that they're going ant-man and wasp are going to see in the theater that's called the submariner versus the fantastic four it's like what (laughs) why would namor do that (laughs) but it's fun (laughs) for me the big standout on this issue was the art which has for throughout most of the issue has this like really dated feel that seems like tom riley is good at it looks a lot like michael cho who did a whole bunch of marvel covers um almost in the style of like ugh, not darwin cook but kind of like it's got uh, a little darwin cook in there just a yeah. little bit though yeah um but i love when a comic it intentionally tries to look like it's from the 70s like the the white in the pe- panels and the panel gutters try to have this kind of like faded orange thing going on that makes it look like it's an older comic than it is and it's written like it's an older comic than it is and i thought that was fun but i really like the framing devices the beginning and the end 
because it's Al Ewing doing sort of pseudoscience stuff where there's a narrator going on and they're aware of the way that Marvel interacts. So it's sort of like, like reader instruction, visual, visualize the following word combination, antiseptic, artificial, metamaterial. Thank you. Inhale now. Thank you. You're imagining the scent of the air and the, the of your mind process, the Marvel component of this Marvel narrative experience. Like it's just like written in this like mechanical a way that like, Marvel comics are known in the future from the narration of this. It's super inventive. I preferred that to the actual execution in this, the comic itself, which is like Al Ewing, who writes really great pseudoscience and science in and of himself, but also then Al Ewing doing Stan Lee. And the whole thing was a little bit laborious for me to get through. And I found myself most interested in the framing device, which is who is this Ant-Man from a different timeline who's kind of like gone back to this 60s, 70s era Ant-Man to, under, you know, like do something. And I think there's like a very meta thing going on with the writing style reflecting the time period of this like chrono traversing Ant-Man. So I think that's very cool. Um, but it, it was a little slow for me to go through. Roman, what do you think about that? Um, I, I could see that. Uh, reading it, I was thinking about all the different reprints of Silver Age com- Marvel comics that I've read and how, yeah, they are very, a lot of them are laborious compared to modern comics. And I can see why somebody getting into comics now might not like those old Marvel style of writing because I mean, it's very heavy exposition, pretty obvious, unneeded exposition because <laughs> um, the artist is doing that for you. But at the same time, when it's done well, I mean, I mean, this is a, when it's not too, just not too laborious. It's a lot of fun. I was actually the least interested in the, um, the Ant-Man from the future. If he is an Ant-Man, I think he is. Um, he looks like John Krasinski from the Fantastic <laughs> yeah, Four. Yeah, he does. And, and again, and I, and it cracked me up because Astonishing Tales back then with Ant-Man, or I think that's what it, the title was. I mean, some of these villains are just so dumb i mean there's the one guy they don't even tales to astonish is what the title is the one guy he doesn't even apparently have a name just henry Pym calls him oh the window washer that has this spray bottle for full of like paralysis fluid (laughs) it's like oh my gosh this this is who ant-man was fighting so that that was fun i like that and then the other guy trago who has a magic trumpet so we got this like jazz themed villain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I i think a lot of people try and do that stan and jack style writing stan yeah. and, you know uh or ditko or whatever and um and it feels a really heavy-handed and i think that this did not feel heavy-handed to me this felt like some of the best reinterpretation or reiteration of that style of storytelling that i've ever read i i, yeah. I, I think very seldom have i ever seen somebody thread the needle between that Stan and Jack style and modern day storytelling. I think this did it almost perfectly so much so that it really felt like reading old Stan stuff, but not in a bad way. Like it it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was really fun. And I'm going to read issue two just to see like what direction it goes with that type. Like, are they going to go to like a sort of eighties style or what? But um, I I was really impressed with it. Yeah. There's um, I think Al Ewan and Mark Wade are two of the very best writers that could capture that silver age goofiness and and fun feeling without without it feeling obvious or laborious or labored yeah i'm so, curious about that too with the next issue because i think the next issue is going to be um same creative team but it's going to be focusing on uh eric o'grady the the irredeemable ant-man the the fuck up ant-man is he the one who slapped slapped the person no that that was the original that was hank pym but eric was the one who was scott lang started as a criminal 
back before he got the Ant-Man equipment, Eric O'Grady was a criminal and kind of kept on being a criminal while he was Ant-Man, okay. but trying to but trying to hide it. Okay. Um. Well, so then what was your score for this, Roman? Because, yeah, it's a little, it's interesting. Uh, my score, you know, I gave it an 8.5, but I'm thinking I'm just going to make it a flat out 9. Nice. I'm going to go 7.5. I think if you have a... Uh, a stance where you kind of love classic Marvel you grew up reading. I think that's going to be a definite plus for you. I think the only reason I'm, you know, putting it at 7.5 is that it's hard for me to go from real modern storytelling back to that classical stuff. Not that it's bad at all, but I think if you read it growing up or if you have an affinity for it, it's going to feel a, like a warm blanket you get to wrap yourself yeah. in. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm impressed by it for sure. And I think the covers are incredible throughout the entire run. Yeah. Did you read it, Sean? Uh, no, I flipped through it because I was oh. curious about Riley's art, but uh, I did not read it. I will read it. Uh, everyone I've talked to has had at least some good things to say about it. So I'll, I'll pick up a copy. Well, we're going to do one last shout out after I do this <laughs> comic. But uh, I, I read and caught up on Deadly Class uh, issues 53 and 54. Uh, Rick Remender, Wes Craig, Lee Luridge. This book has followed me, haunted me and been a part of my life since before I started at the comic shop. And there are two issues left after this. I'm incredibly sad. There are not many 54 comic runs that I have. Yeah, sorry, 56. But yeah, 54 up to this point where I have read every single issue and love it and wait anxiously for the next issue. Like Saga cannot claim that thing. I'll read it in trade or whatever. Uh, Deadly Class, almost unrecognizable as a series currently from what it was when it started, but is maybe the most autobiographical comic book I've ever loved and read. And at this point, the main character has grown up to the point where he's an adult and he's become a writer and he's written a book that is clearly an analogy for Rick Remender writing fear agent. And then it's being greenlit for a television show, but it's clearly him processing when deadly class was created as a television show for sci-fi network. And it almost run him ragged. Like he almost just quit everything um, and kind of became a recluse after that. You can see him processing that that whole phase of his life in these issues where Marcus has now just become this overweight guy who is run ragged by trying to make a TV show of a book that he's read um, or written rather. It's really interesting. I would love to have a conversation with Rick Remender at some point in the future. And I hope that that can happen because I have no idea if this was the direction this book was taking when it started I feel like it was not, and I feel like it's become autobiographical, and I love that because I have grown up so much in the almost 10 years it's been since this book started. Uh, the art is incredible. Wes Craig, one of the only people I own a comic page of, I think one of the best comic artists working today. Um, the relationships that are intact are amazing, and they're doing that cleaning house thing where they are killing people. Um, and like every other issue or something. So there's stakes are very, very high. Issue 54 is part six of this final arc. It's going to be eight parts long. And it has been a cleaning house. Amazing thing. It's called a fond farewell. If you like an Elliot Smith reference, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I, I can't give that book anything less than a 9.0. It's it's probably the book that is the nearest and dearest to my heart in all of comics that are currently coming out. And he's not disappointing and it's changed drastically in terms of what the book is. And I bet there's people that do not like that, but as someone who's grown up with it and matured nine years since the, it started nine or 10 years, um, I'm here for it and I love it. And I just, uh, I'm so proud of him and I bet it's been really challenging and 
there's there's like two issues left that it's going to break my heart when it's over. There is not a book that more represents my time working in the comic industry than Deadly Class. And it's going to bum me out in a holy, holy regard. And I will be very, very sad. But I wanted to make sure I was current on the issues while it was happening. So I caught up. And I'm here for it. And Rick, I love you. And Wes, I love you. And again, we're recording this podcast. And above my shoulder, there is hanging a page from this comic. And I don't blame anyone who is sick of it at this point, because it is so it is such a diary entry of the grossest parts of a person's psyche. <laughs> and uh, I really I really applaud the artistry in it. So 9.0 for these issues and the series undoubtedly will get a 10 for me. But before we go, Variants 2 came out this week. Did you guys both read that? Yeah. Yes. I, I didn't read issue number one. I just jumped in for this one. Uh, this one is written by Gail Simone, art by Phil Noto, Marvel Comics, uh, Jessica Jones. I loved this issue. I loved it. I jumped in on issue two. I loved this. I, I, I From what I heard about issue one, I feel like two was better. Um, but dang, this was a good comic. You can jump in. Yeah. Uh, well, honestly, issue two doesn't really add too much new stuff from what issue one had. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you can easily jump in at issue two and probably find your footing pretty quickly. Yeah, because it really did just feel like if you read issue one, good. If you didn't, that's fine, because it's really just kind of like spent time with characters, you know. Um, I don't know if it felt like a waste of time if you read issue one. But for me jumping in, I thought the art was gorgeous. And I really like uh gail simone's writing in it it was not laborious at all it was really great writing yeah the, this issue i think the writing was a lot better especially the dialogue i think yeah. there was a little bit of clunky dialogue in that first issue um which is you know it's fine usually um but i thought this one was a lot cleaner and had some really great character moments too uh luke cage of course is awesome uh she hulk yeah. being there was great um purple man like all that stuff was really interesting uh, roman what did you think and i have then i have a question for you too um <clears throat> i really loved it i mean i loved issue one as well but uh i love the fact that gail simone is writing this and early on the scene with tigra and jessica jones in the diner and, Jess and Jess jessica talking about it and it's so fitting and continuing her character um, from Bendis's run and the show's run where her inner monologue is talking about the, the shiny women like Tigra, the superhero mm -hmm. women that are, are aware of and also kind of put up with and also sometimes use because Tigra always wore like a bikini towards her costume. Um, and Jessica just talking about how she doesn't want any part of that, how, you know, just the way our society men and our society see these women like she uses the example of the wasps once saving some child's life yeah and, the and, news. and yeah and the newspaper just like ran a, a close-up shot of her butt crack and it's like oh my god this just felt so true about yeah. the way that media you don't hear about good stuff you only hear about what's going to make clicks yeah, yeah. that's yeah, that's was, what would be all over the internet would be that headline in that picture yeah it's, it's, it's yeah it's so true and i and i just really appreciate the fact that a, a good writer who also happens to be a woman is writing this because I love Jessica Jones. That was my favorite Netflix Marvel TV show. And if, yeah. you know, if fans have only seen that show and like that show, this is a great continuation of that. Cause this is Jessica Jones just as she was on that show. Sean. Did you, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was gonna say, if, if you are a fan, you should absolutely read the, uh, the alias run as well. The, Oh, yeah. the Bendis. Bendis one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, um, I just I just want to shout out that I, I heard some criticism of the first issue just being like, man, can't we get a Jessica Jones story that doesn't involve the purple man? And I think that there's some credence to that criticism, if you want to call it that. But 
I think when you're dealing with a character who is this strong, independent, amazing woman, and the fact that she was mind control for eight months, like I can kind of see how that is like the nexus for which all of her story and character spins out of, especially because like that's what the Bendis run was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think they handled it really, really well because I think it's such a great story hook of like it's been ten years and apparently there's, there's like a, a sleeper, ticking time bomb going. Yeah, in ten brain. years in, he can get to you. Um, and now it's and now whether that's true or not, she's terrified that it's true. So once again, he's managed to control her life while not being alive. Like that's terrifying. And I think that it's a story that does take a female protagonist and a female writer, I think, to really hit home in a, in a great way, because there's that's such a the controlling nature of men in characters lives, especially women is so huge um yeah i I like to have the the metaphorical kind of uh examination of that in this comic what i'm curious about is in this at one point you know she like realizes kind of the extent to which maybe she's this ticking time bomb for the purple man and she tells luke to go away with the kid and then she goes up to the roof and she sees daredevil and she like makes a pass at daredevil i don't know enough about her history with daredevil to have made i feel like a ton of sense out of that scene like has she had a relationship with him does it feel like that scene was used to explore the idea that she's not in control of her actions i'm curious what the two guys uh in front of me beautiful men think about that scene or what the purpose of that scene was to even then have made it onto the cover and again shout out phil noto's art and this is amazing oh so good i was a little confused with that scene and i wasn't quite sure what variant or what the character we were looking at if yeah like maybe it's a variant or, of her yeah yeah i was a little confused with that and i wasn't quite sure like is she making a pass at him is that what's going on here it was a very awkward scene roman what'd um, you think yeah i was confused by that too and i i don't know if her and daredevil have a have a past a romantic past i assumed because of the kiss that this was one of the variants and also the and also because it could be this should be the coloring but i thought oh is she I can't tell if the clothing is the same as the gen we saw earlier that said goodbye to Luke. Um, okay. But yeah, I wasn't clear if that was it a It is variant. a different outfit. And, yeah, you're right. It's a different outfit. But it does. She's got like, a coat on, yeah. But it does look like the same outfit that after she's, Luke went out the door, she calls Jen after the rooftop scene. She's talking to Jen, who's She-Hulk, and she is wearing that jacket. But she's wearing a darker colored shirt when she's talking to Jen than it looks like she's wearing when she's talking to Daredevil. Yeah. Which is a thought idea. I didn't have that idea. Maybe it's a variant. Okay. So like, I think you're, you're both onto something there. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know. And then the variant shows up at the end. That's from when her, when she was in her trying to do the full superhero part of her, her career, which I think was before purple man got a hold of her. I just love that she was like, you said you were in trouble. So I grabbed the nearest thing next to me that might make people afraid. So I grabbed this fantastic <laughs> four out. For, I, I love that. Yeah. Um, that was really funny. But you guys are totally right. She says, Jen, I'm in trouble. She calls. And then our next shot is her flying and she sees Daredevil and has this scene. And then it's Jen and. Yeah, which else? I'm sorry. Jen and Jeff. No, I was just like, yeah, it, it seems like there's a jump there. So they're probably different people. I think you're right. It seems like a jump. But also the fact. And I just realized this when you said it, the fact that she's flying, because the Jennifer Jones we're familiar with, or Jessica, geez, Jessica Jones, <laughs> that we're familiar with, um, currently, she doesn't like to fly, because she was never good at landing. And also, this preview page in the back shows uh, Jennifer, you know, she hold, holding two Jessicas with leather jackets apart from one another. 
Uh, oh, oh, right. So yeah. I bet that it is those two <laughs> Jessicas. And I bet that they both think that they're the same person, kind of like your classic uh, right. uh, Peter Parker, Ben Riley. So I, mm-hmm. I like where this is going. And I think Gail is doing an amazing job writing and the art is gorgeous. And I, I will read more of this series. And uh, all of that is to say I gave this an 8.5. Yeah, me, me too. I And I can see what, you know, how some people might be like, yeah, it's Purple Man again. Come on. But but yeah, I really think, I mean, can you imagine I mean, it's hard for us as men, I think, to imagine somebody controlling you and abusing you, but controlling you for, you know, eight months. Yeah. I mean, we just can't understand that, I feel like, in the same way that, that unfortunately, probably a lot of women, most women, I don't know, can. And I think exploring that is ripe fodder for stories. I yeah. mean, it's such, it's such a, I mean, it changed her whole life and her, how she felt about being a superhero, everything. It just changed everything. So of course she can go back to that. So what were your scores for it, gentlemen? Uh, I gave it a nine. Oh yeah. It, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's right there. It's, I think this is a great comic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I also gave it a nine. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, Roman's really well expressed thoughts it made me think about something for Deadly Class as well which is there's been these large time jumps between these issues and it makes me feel like it's rife for um, storytelling to exist after the fact about the time jumps that existed there so uh, I think that's really really cool did you see that Wes Craig is doing a new book that he's writing and drawing Ooh, what is it he's written and drawn a number of things yeah I just saw it in previews earlier today I don't remember what it was okay. called it was like Kaya or something like okay. that it looks I'll very support cute, him with anything, but I yeah. do generally like his art more than his writing, but I'll support him with anything. Yeah. Um, this was the Comics Place Presents a Perfectly Simple Podcast, episode 278. It was Roman, Jeff, and Sean. We got buddied out here. We missed Django. And I think because of the little snafu in the first 15 minutes of our recording, you guys didn't get to hear from Django. So maybe we'll find a way to fix that. Maybe it came together. I don't know. Uh, that's going to fall on Andrew, the amazing editor. So a big thank you as always to Andrew Carlson, who edits this podcast. A oh, huge thank, thank you, you Andrew. to Judd and Will for writing in. If you want to prove to us, writers, authors of this podcast, that you are not dead, that you are alive to us, <laughs> you can shoot us an email at jeffatthecommonsplace.com. It's the only way to prove that you exist in the year. Tony, out. where are you at? Tony, I know you're there. Tony, last name? Moore. Tony Moore. Well, Peach <laughs> Mogo's out there. She's just waiting until you're here, but maybe she'll uh, let us know now that you, you've expressed your love for her. Um, thank you so much for listening. We've loved being here. It's great to hang out with each other. We are excited to have Django back soon. He's coding his butt away. He's also going away out of town for a day or two with his amazing partner, Erica. So wish them well. Um, he's coding his butt? What's he coding his butt co- with? coating his butt with a uh, lamb skin it's <laughs> um, tripe uh mm. thanks for hanging out i am always am jeff i'm romy pie and i'm shawnee poo and as we always <laughs> say, say as we go keep watching the skies Ooh.